This is one of the most critical months of the year financially for Back to the Bible Canada. June is our fiscal year end and will dictate many of the plans for ministry moving forward. This month, our goal is to raise $338,000, a lofty but reachable goal as we work together for a common purpose, teaching the Bible. One reason this goal is attainable is the special commitment of ministry friends to a $75,000 match campaign. Perhaps you'd consider a special gift this month that would make the most of this match campaign. Your gift of $100 would become $200, $500 become $1,000. Together the goal will be achieved and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada sustained and increase in its impact. Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And remember, what you're investing in is quite simple. We teach the Bible. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Beginning of Woes. I hope that in our study of Revelation, an image is starting to form. You know, all of history is moving the human race to the point where every one of us must decide which world we'd like to belong to, this one or the one to come. That's the great decision. Now, in some ways, the entire New Testament constantly revisits that theme. Here's but one example. The reason the book of Hebrews was written is to draw attention to that refrain. In the ancient world, the Jewish community had been able to forge a unique relationship with Rome. Jews of all people would be excused from pouring out sacrificial offerings to Caesar and confessing him as Lord. That's partially because Rome was very aware of the unique Jewish situation. The Jews were monotheists, and the Jews had ten ancient commands given to them by God. The first of them forbade them from having any other god, and the second prevented them from making a worshiping an idol. And so Rome found a way to let the Jews be the Jews, to be unique, even while they ruled over them. But no such exception was given to the new religion, Christianity. And so the book of Hebrews was written because of a conversation within the Jewish Christian community. Perhaps some reason we should go back to Judaism, and if we did, we would be legally protected. But if we remain in the Christian community, and then as Christians refuse to bow to Caesar, well, no protection is going to be offered to us. And so Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to abandon their faith because of extreme Roman pressure. That's why the book of Hebrews paints Jesus as the supreme Son of God, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God, who upholds the universe by his power. And then Hebrews goes on to prove that Jesus is infinitely superior to Moses. And furthermore, the book of Hebrews warns these Jewish Christians not to be like their forefathers, who when they saw the promised land simply turned back thinking, this is way too difficult. They were to have faith that the promised land was worth more than the safety of the Roman Empire. See, for Christians, the promised life is the one to come. Now, the drama that we see played out in the book of Hebrews, well, that same drama got played out hundreds of times in various contexts throughout the New Testament. 
Jesus himself told his followers that they must pick up their cross and follow him. And then he went on to say that whoever would seek to save his life in this world is going to lose it in the one to come. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 5-6 speaks about the salvation that would be revealed in the last time. And then he adds, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the current world, well, that's the world of trial. And as we read Revelation, we see seven churches in Asia who have definitely been grieved by various trials. The book of Revelation is written to encourage them not to become weary, but to press on in faithfulness, banking on the future promises of God. That, for instance, is why Jesus told the church in Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So I hope you see the pattern. Because we are convinced of the trustworthiness of the promises to come, we would gladly forsake this present temporary world. And then as Revelation progresses, we see this world coming to an end. For a long period of time, the world seems to carry on while the gospel is going forward. But then the scroll is opened and suddenly the great day of the Lord opens suddenly before the human race. History's last hours are now being recorded. And so seven angels step forward with trumpets in their hands. The first four trumpets, as we have seen, signal a partial devastation of the natural order. First the arable land, then the world's oceans, then the world's fresh water, and finally the amount of light shining upon the earth. Now, in case you missed it, none of these events are natural phenomena either earthquakes or volcanoes or the result of pollution. That's because God is making it overwhelmingly clear that this is a supernatural phenomenon. He wants the inhabitants of the earth to know that they are under divine judgment, much like what happened in Egypt. You know, the plagues in Egypt led the wise men of Egypt to exclaim, this is none other than the finger of God. But the drama of the day of the Lord has just begun. Listen to Revelation 8.13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying out with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. You know, back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 7, we saw four living creatures before God's throne. One, we are told, had the face of an eagle. If this is the same creature, and we can't know that for sure, but if it is, then we have a clear indication that what's happening on earth comes directly as a result of an order from the throne of God. God is making his presence known, the people of the earth, in a clear and unmistakable way. Now, we come now to what the eagle warned about, the blowing of the other trumpets. I'm reading Revelation 9, 1 to 4. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft arose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Reading this seems surreal. We're left to wonder whether this is to be taken literally, figuratively, or how are we to understand this? Now, before we answer that, let's take a close look at three phenomena. 
First, the star that falls from heaven. Second, the bottomless pit. And then third, the locusts that come from the bottomless pit. So let's start with a star. Clearly, the star refers to a being, for he, or the star, is given the key to the pit. Some Bible teachers see this as a description of Satan and refer to Luke chapter 10, where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So for them, Satan is here released to open the abyss and release his demons onto the earth. Now, I suppose that's possible, but I don't think it's likely. Now, the reason I say that is because when we look ahead to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 2, we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So here we see an angel of God holding the key to the bottomless pit. So from my vantage point, I see no reason to assume from within the context of Revelation 9 that the star that comes down holding the key is none other than one of God's angels. Okay, the next phenomena. What is this thing called the bottomless pit? The literal reading here is the abyss. I want to take you to Luke chapter 8. You know, this chapter contains the story of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man. The demons, who are as many as a Roman legion, enter into a herd of pigs, and then the pigs rush over a steep bank into the Sea of Galilee and are drowned. See, many of you remember that account. You might also remember that just before the demons are driven out of the man, Luke 8.31 says of the demons, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. In other words, the demons are then not in the abyss, and furthermore, they fear going there even while they know that one day they're going to. Furthermore, according to Revelation 20, Satan will be thrown into the abyss for a thousand years, and then again, later in that same chapter, we're told of the place that is a lake of fire in which it seems reasonable for me to assume that both the abyss and the lake of fire probably refer to the same place. And so you might ask, Where exactly are the demons? At Jesus' time, they're afraid of going into the abyss, which must mean that they're not there. And then in the end time, they are thrown there. So how is it that in Revelation 9, they seem to be there and then are released for a brief period of time? And this is why, at least so it seems to me, the language of Revelation 9 is figurative in some fashion. I think that the image of an angel who opens the key to the abyss is an image. And that's where these beings rightfully belong. Beings whose rightful place is hell are suddenly released onto the earth. At least, that's how I read this. And as I see it, that must mean that this is an image of God allowing the realm of the demons to be released onto the earth. Opening the shaft of the abyss is a powerful illustration of setting free a great demonic horde to do great damage. It's a terrifying image. This month, we're excited to begin airing Volume 2 of Dr. Neufeld's new release series on the Revelation entitled, The Triumph of the Lamb. Volume 2 includes the study of chapters 6 to 11 and includes topics such as the opening of the seals, the 144,000, the great multitude, the significance of the trumpets, and so much more. For most of us, when we hear this series, we'll gain wonderful new insights and a new depth of understanding. 
as Dr. Neufeld helps us to allow the scriptures to speak for themselves in this often reluctantly studied book. Now for this month only, as we did with volume one, we want to make the Triumph of the Lamb CD series available for only $10 plus shipping and handling. This is a series you'll want to make a point of hearing. So call us today for this special price at 1-800-663-2425, or you can order online at backtothebible.ca. We've looked at two images. The first is of an angel coming with a key, and second, he unlocks the bottomless pit, and as it is unlocked, we see smoke as of a furnace pouring out. Now the third image. What comes out of the pit are demons to be sure, but please notice how John describes them. He says there are locusts. Now most of us today don't see the horror in that, what is basically a grasshopper. But people in the ancient world would have seen the horror in that in an instant. The book of Joel is a book designed to warn Israel of the coming great day of the Lord. It speaks of the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, what we think of today as Armageddon. The nation, says Joel, will be gathered there. The sun, the moon will be darkened. The God of glory will roar from Zion and the earth will begin to shake. At least that's how the book ends. But the book begins by reminding the first readers of something that has happened in their day. That event was something that no previous generation in Israel had seen before. It was a terrible event. Joel, who's a prophet, knows that the terrible event that has happened in his day is a foreshadowing of the great and terrible day of the Lord, the beginning of the end of the earth. So what happened in Joel's day where that was so terrible? Listen to Joel chapter 1 and verse 4. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. In other words, Israel has had such a great locust infestation that it utterly wiped out Israel's food supply. That was the worst locust invasion in their history. You don't get it yet? Well, let's let Joel describe the locusts, his own words, from chapter 1, 6 to 8. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. In those words, you need to hear the realities of famine, starvation, utterly ruined economy, looming death for both you and your children. See, in the ancient world, a locust plague could be so great that you would hear them buzzing from a long distance away, and they would utterly darken the sky, and they would kill your future and your land. So imagine that Revelation, borrowing from that image in Joel, is telling us of something like what happened in Joel's day. But instead of a locust plague over the land of Israel, this is a demon locust invasion over the entire earth. And then says Revelation chapter 9, they are told not to harm the grass or the green plants or the trees. In other words, this is a very different kind of a locust. After all, the grass and the plants are the very reason why locusts were feared. But these locusts don't touch the crops. It turns out they aren't eating plant life. They seem to be locusts who target people. 
These locusts have the power of scorpions, and they have a mission, flying through the air in a dense cloud, stinging like a scorpion, the people of the earth. That's terrifying. But as we have seen, God is determined to protect his people. All who have the seal of God on their forehead cannot be stung. So how does that happen? Well, we don't know. It happens supernaturally. God goes out of his way to protect his people. So let's continue to read, and I'm reading Revelation chapter 9, verses 5 to 6. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, I need to be clear that I don't know why five months. But I do know, as we read through Revelation, that at the blowing of the seven trumpets, which marks the beginning of the day of the Lord, this is a divine warning of a full-scale judgment falling soon after. Up until now, only a third of the earth is affected, and up until now, terrible suffering that is limited in scope is affected, but not death. This is terrifying to be sure, but it is a divine forewarning, be reconciled to God, it says. I can't help but see the irony here. See, up till now in Revelation, we've seen the company of the martyrs. And yet, as Paul has said in Philippians 1.23, it's better to depart and be with Christ. Paul knows that the world to come is better than the present one. He's, He's banking on the future promises of God. But on the other hand are those who have clearly chosen this world over the one to come. And they now see how dreadful this world is. They want no more of this earth. It's too painful, but they can't escape from this earth. So let's continue to read. I'm reading Revelation 9, 7 to 11. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails." They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now let's start with the end of the passage, for really that's the easiest part to understand. The Hebrew word for Abaddon and its Greek translation Apollyon, that word means destroyer. This is completely in line with how Jesus describes Satan. Jesus called him a thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan has been inspiring wars and murders since the time when Cain killed Abel down to the present day. He's rightfully called the destroyer. He is king over this demonic band of locusts. Proverbs 30 verse 27 says, The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. Well, that's true for natural locusts. Even though they don't have a chief commander giving them orders, they still don't break ranks until they accomplish their purpose. But in this case, in the case of the demonic locusts, they actually do have a king. And so their rank and their resolve is only strengthened. They have orders and they will obey them. But what do we make of their appearance? And again, please notice, we have here some highly figurative language. The crowns of gold on their head might suggest that each one of them is a great champion in battle. The human faces suggest that each one is highly intelligent. Their hair like a woman's hair is a difficult one, but ancient commentators used to say that they were given a seductive appearance until they stung one. 
than their teeth like a lion who can resist their power. Their breastplates are like iron, meaning their defenses are impregnable, and the noise of their wings indicate a terrifying number rushing forward into battle. And what is this sting that they inflict? Again, I think we should not look for some similarity in the natural world. These are demonic beings who, when they strike, cause crippling pain that lasts for five months. Now, as you've heard me do on many occasions, let me try to help us grasp how this must have sounded to the Christians in the seven churches who first heard the book being read. See, many of these Christians feared the power of Rome, and they feared that being exposed to Rome's power would leave them vulnerable. But now as they read this, they saw what it is that makes a man or woman truly vulnerable. Anyone who does not have the seal of God on their forehead is vulnerable. See, you're vulnerable if your hope is in this world and not in the one to come. And so there's a message for us. When the judgment of God begins to fall on this earth, you want to have the seal of God on your forehead. You know, for those of you who are listening to me and you aren't sure whether or not you're a Christian, You need to confess your sins before God and turn to Jesus. You need to ask him to forgive you. You need to pray for God to show you his mercy. You need to throw your life into his hands and abandon the pleasures of this earth. So please don't refuse God's offer of grace. Notice the words in this passage. They will long for death, but death will flee from them. It's horrifying. You know, for some today, their hope is that when death comes, they will be able to die relatively peacefully, and then, you know, it's all just going to be over. But this world is not all there is. And furthermore, you're not in control of your life. And still more, the reason these judgments described in Revelation have not happened yet, that is, in our day, is because God is merciful. He's holding back these events for the sake of his mercy. So don't bank on the endless patience of God. God's patience is supposed to sober you up, leading you to repentance and not to complacency. Bank on the world to come. Bank on the promises of God. Bank on what Christ has accomplished in his death on the cross. Think to yourself, there can be no safety outside of this one thing, that I would have the seal of God on my forehead or on my life. Make your commitment to Christ today. John, this is an intriguing passage of Scripture that we're going through right now, one that uh, it's fearful, it's dark. Uh, But I think what can happen sometimes as we go through this is we can sort of lose track of what it's really trying to tell the believer. Yeah, I think it's trying to tell the believer, first of all, that there is a day coming when the day of the Lord comes and, you know, God visits the human race in his wrath. He tells how important it is for believers to be protected from his wrath. But he's also telling non-believers, at, at least at the beginning, if I read this rightly, of the Great Tribulation, he's tormenting them so that they might turn to him. I mean, he could just immediately end the world and bring judgment immediately. But God is always merciful. He's always patient. He sometimes even brings great suffering on the lives of people so that they might see that, you know, this is not a world that you want to cling to. If your only hope is in this world, you know, your best days are always behind you and not before you. But if your best days are in the world to come, well, you know, then they're, they're ahead of you. So I think that the point of the entire passage is to get us to be remembering constantly, this world is not our home. Let's set our face fully on the promises that God has given us in the future. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada. 
we teach the Bible. 